This scripture can be found in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You can find your Bibles again or use the one in the rack and fruit. We are in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. It's on page 1163 if you're using the, rack, the, the Bible in the, in the pew. And uh, we're looking at verses 10 and 11. And this morning we're talking about fellowship with Christ. So knowing Jesus as we just sang together. Related and knowing Christ. That was Paul's chief ambition. That was his singular desire to know Christ. Uh, as he says there in, in 3.10. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? To know Jesus. Now, but knowing Christ can of course mean a lot of different things to different people. Some of us are tempted to treat our relationship with Jesus like we might treat an expensive sweater. So we, we buy it because of what it's like on us, and we like that. And then we get home, we read that the tag said clean only. And so it just kind of ends up staying in the, the closet or crumpled out of the hamper for several months as the other clothes get dumped on top and washed off and so on. We bought it because of what we thought we would get out of it, but then when we found the cost, we weren't as interested anymore. And so we can treat our relationships just like that. Others of us might be more tempted to know Jesus like we know the DVD collection of our television series. So we spend regular time with it. We refer to it. We even quote it relatively often. We even know some episodes frontwards and backwards. But knowledge of that does absolutely not change our lives. So it's a sterile knowledge. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't bear any fruit. So what does Paul mean when he talks about knowing Jesus, his desire to know Christ? What kind of relationship, what kind of fellowship does this look like? Well, as we've been working through Philippians, uh, if chapter 120 through 211 was the instructional heart of Paul's book, where he's kind of telling us how to live to his appeal to live worthy of the gospel, if that was the instructional heart, then 3.10 through 11 is the theological heart. So everything in this book points to and flows out this reality that we're looking at this morning, what it means to know Jesus. This is the climax of Paul's exhortation back in verse 1. He started this chapter, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice, be satisfied in Jesus. And we saw the urgency of rejoicing in Jesus in verses 2 through 3. We warned us against counterfeit Christianities. Last week we saw the necessity of rejoicing in Jesus in verses 4 through 9. We saw how taking hold of Christ as Savior means saying no to all other would-be saviors because there's no gain in this world that compares to knowing and being found righteous in him. And so this morning, then, we're going to see the essence or the heart of rejoicing in Jesus, to know him, to fellowship with Christ, which means walking in the power of his resurrection and following the pattern of his cross. That's where we're going. So let's pray together and ask God to bless our time. Lord, we are completely dependent on you. 
and we thank you for that reality. That you made us to know you and need you, and that is exactly what we ask this that you would meet us and that we would know you more. Open our eyes to see you more clearly in your word. Give us ears to hear your voice from the scriptures. Change our hearts as we gaze at the beauty of Christ. Meet us this morning for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 with me. Paul says, To know Christ and the power of direction and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, our this morning is not the first time we've seen the word fellowship in the book of Philippians. We noted pretty early in the series that this book, the whole book itself, is about our fellowship, or the word we've been using is our partnership in and for the gospel of Jesus. We saw clear at the beginning of the book, Paul prayed with joy for the Philippian church because their fellowship or partnership in the gospel. They were bound together in the gospel and for the gospel to advance it. At the end of the book, Paul thanks them again for their fellowship, same word as our passage, same word as chapter 1, their fellowship in giving and receiving the advance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus known to the ends of the earth. So as people of God in Christ, we are called to be a community shaped by the gospel so that, that the good news, the work of what Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that's to shape our lives. That he bore our sin, that he lived the righteous life. That's to shape our lives and our relationships, how we treat one another, the way we forgive one another, the way we speak, the way we love and lay our lives down for one another. So it's to shape our community, also to fuel and to direct our mission. It's the that's on our lips as we engage our neighbors, our colleagues. It's the, the pattern that we demonstrate as we lay on our lives in love service. We are to be a community, a fellowship of the gospel. But our fellowship together, our partnership with one another, is bound up in our fellow or our partnership with God. So it's not just what we're doing here. What we're doing here is contingent on and fueled by our relationship with God. That's what Paul tells us in chapter 2 when he ties our fellowship, fellowship we have with the Spirit. In chapter verse 2, our fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And then here in chapter 3, he ties our fellowship to the fellowship that with Christ, in knowing and relating with Jesus our partnership, our job as God's people in Christ is impossible apart from our fellowship with God, our partnership with God. So whatever it means to know Christ here in this passage shapes and fuels what we're called to do as the body. So we want to listen. We want to listen up. We want to see what Paul is after here. He wants to know Christ in 310, and of course he's following on from what he has just said, what we looked at week, verses 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's already expressed that central desire. Now he's reiterating it. He's pounding it again in verse 10. He's willing to lose everything in the world 
for the privilege of knowing Jesus more. And this is coming from someone who's known Jesus for about 30 years by the time he writes this. And yet, here his desire is to know Christ more, to fellow with Christ. But what does knowing mean? Paul, it is far more than a sterile intellectualism, like knowing a book or a collection of DVDs. So, you know, we might feel good about our knowledge of or about Jesus. We might even impress others with it. But if it bears no fruit in our lives, if it does nothing to change our hearts, then it's sterile. Or to use Francis Schaeffer's that kind of knowledge would be rather like a starving man sitting in front of great heaps of food and say, I believe food exists, I believe it's real, yet never eating it. That's that kind of, I know about Jesus, but I don't really know him personally. Christ is far more than agreeing with who he is and what he's done or knowing facts about him. It's more than just intellectual assent. And it's different than a self-serving contractual obligation where I do my part, be good. God does his part, makes me happy, and nobody gets hurt. So, you know, treating Jesus like a shirt or a sweater, you know, using him for what I get out of him and then discard him when he's no longer useful for my purposes. Paul's talking about something different than that. Sadly, that way of relating with God is, is really become the, the default religion in North America even among Christians who gather every Sunday to God, even conservative Christians. Sociologists even have a name for this. They call it moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the new religion of North America. Sociologist Christian Smith, in his landmark study, Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, writes this. He suggests that the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers, later he ascribes this to all generations, that the de facto dominant religion is what we might call moralistic, therapeutic, deism. The creed of this religion, if, it was, if there was one, it's not a formal actual, you know, they don't have churches of moralistic, therapeutic, describing what on the surface people actually really believe about God in the relationship. The, the creed of this, if there was one, would go something like this. One, exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay? Not bad. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and world religions. Three, the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the central goal. Four, God need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, people go to heaven when they die. That is what it means for the average Christian to know Christ and relate with God. That kind of relationship. Now, notice there's nothing about the death and resurrection of Christ, nothing about sin or faith or repentance or obedience and so on. Smith continues, In short, God is something combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people feel about themselves, 
and does not come too personally in the process. So knowing Jesus' words in that sense is all about me and what I get out of it. Nothing could be farther from what Paul is talking about in this passage. No, far beyond some sterile book knowledge or some serving contract, good, be nice, and then God will bless you. Paul tells us what he means by knowing Christ. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. That's his general statement. And then he gets specific. Here's what that, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings being like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, knowing Jesus means walking in the power of the resurrection and following the pattern of the cross. That's what he means. That's what he longs for in his relationship with God, to walk in the power of the resurrection and to follow the pattern of the cross. So think first with me about the power of Christ's resurrection. Jesus, God-man, so God, fully human, was crucified, nailed to a cross, murdered as an innocent man to pay the penalty of my sin and your sin, Arlene. He died. He was buried. He was wrapped in linen with 75 pounds of spices and placed in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Think about that. He wasn't passed out for three days. He wasn't just sleeping. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. He was as dead as dead gets. And he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. Now, remember that death was not part of God's design. Death was a result of our sin, our rebellion against God. And so in destroying the power of sin on the cross by taking it on himself and exhausting his father's holy anger against our sin in our place... Jesus defeated the power of death. Death no longer wins. It no longer has a grip on this creation. It has been broken. It has been defeated. It doesn't get the final word. Or as the Old Testament puts it, it's losting. Death has lost its sting. Rather, life gets the final word. Eternal life for those who are in Christ. The Christian hope. That's the Christian hope. And it's for all who believe in Jesus. The death isn't the final word. Now, ask yourself, what kind of power does it take to take a dead king, rotting in the ground for three days, and not just resuscitate it, but to make it fully alive again? Jesus didn't come crawling out of tomb, half dead and, and, and weary and wounded, clinging to life. Neither was he some sort of you know, umby-like, living dead type thing. What had been a cold, smelly, lifeless corpse was now made new, resurrected, 
brimming with life. A perfect physical body that will never be subject to decay again. What kind of power does it take to do that? That is a power infinitely beyond anything we can imagine. That is a power wants to know in his relationship with Christ. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that will one day raise our bodies from the dead just like Jesus. Paul speaks of this at the end of chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything his control will transform our lowly bodies, our humble, broken bodies, so that they will be like his glorious body. We have the hope of the resurrection. Death will not win those who are in Christ. But this is also a power that's already at work in us to give us new life. Listen to 8.11. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead gives life to us, new life. Resurrection is a future hope, but it's also a present power by God's Spirit that's all work in those who believe in Christ. So, if knowing Jesus means walking this power, the power of the resurrection, then we're talking about a lot more than just knowing it's about a religion. We're talking about more or something entirely different from manipulating some deity in order to get what we want out of life. We're talking about relating with God personally. His lives in our hearts. We're talking about the God who has himself known by the power of the Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ and knowing him personally. By God's grace, we know Jesus not like we know a book, but more like we know a friend or a spouse. So it's that kind of knowledge, a deep personal delightful knowledge. So walking in the resurrection means first knowing Christ personally. Second, it means not relying on our own effort, so our, our corrupt sinful flesh in order to, to know and serve God. You know, contrary to the temptation to depend on ourselves, whether it's our, our you know, our intellectual knowledge of God or moralistic performance, doing more good things than, than bad things, which is actually the very kinds of things counted as rubbish and loss. So could know Jesus. He, he threw off that kind of stuff. Like that, walking in the power of the resurrection means that we did God's spirit on the very earth who lives within us, not our own ability, effort, and sinful flesh. It means, it means living by faith, that the God who raises dead is at work in you. Think about it. The God who raises the dead is at work in you. To take weak, 
broken, sinful people like you and me to bring something beautiful and holy out of this mess. The God who raised that is at work in you, believing that. We need the power of the resurrection. Often when we face a, a problem or a and the world's full of them, you know, we lose our job. Our parent gets sick and can no longer care uh, for themselves. Our child makes foolish decisions. The money runs out. One betrays us or someone we love is betrayed and hurt by another. How often amid those difficulties do we stop and remind ourselves that we serve the God who raises the dead? That this God lives within us by his spirit. That he's with us and for us, and he's the one who's actually able to do something about our problem, our dilemma. That change our outlook on creation, facing a complete possible problem. Remember, we serve the God who raises the dead. That was pretty impossible. God did it. That's the power of the resurrection. To know Jesus is to know the power of the resurrection. Everything Paul calls us to in the book rests on this core reality the power of the resurrection of Christ at works. That's what gives new life to our stillborn souls. That's what enables us to know God and love Him and read in Jesus. That's what fuels our humility and our unity and our love as we partner together on mission. But walking in the power of the resurrection and depending on God's spirit means life will take a certain shape. The shape of Christ's sufferings. That's Paul's next point. Ironically, the resurrection life is lived in the pattern of the cross. And that's how Paul goes as he continues in verse 10. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellow of his sufferings become like him in his death. If we stop and think about that, it doesn't exactly make a whole lot of sense. We just got done talking about how death has been defeated, how life gets the last word, and it says that the way to walk in the power of the resurrection is to die. What are you, what's going on, Paul? Sharing or fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings, it's not just Paul's desire, God's design. Think back to 1, verse 29, what Paul told us there. has been graciously granted to us not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. This is where any attempt to know Jesus in a mere textbook fashion or as a means of achieving my personal destiny, which usually involves avoiding suffering, this is where any attempt to know Jesus in that way falls dreadfully short of being biblical. Any attempt to know Jesus that doesn't risk sharing in his sufferings is an attempt to know some other Jesus, not the one God would recognize as his son. But why knowing the sufferings of Christ so important for our relation or service? 
it's not because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. We have to experience some sort of pain known for or make up what's left for what's left of our sins. That's not the reason. That's not what Paul's talking about by sharing in his sufferings. Paul's not talking about some, some kind of living purgatory where, where we're punished by God to close the gap between what Christ has done and what God requires. That's not it at all. That would go completely against everything that the scriptures teach about the finished of Christ on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for our sins. He drained the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that there is no punishment left for the No punishment left, not in this life, not in what this life. Neither is Paul saying that we share in Christ's sufferings to help atone for the sins of others. That would be to make the same mistake. Jesus' sacrifice was unique in that way, bring sin. So why do we suffer for Christ? And how does that help us know Jesus? We could say a lot on this, and the Bible talks a lot about it, but I think the book of Philippians highlights two reasons for us. The first is to make the gospel known, and the second is to be changed by God's grace. We suffer, we share in the sufferings of Jesus to make the gospel known and to be changed by God's grace. So first, we share in Jesus' sufferings to make his gospel known. We follow the pattern of the cross to show the world what Christ was willing to do to rescue us from our sin and to bring us back to God. We're called to proclaim the gospel with words, to tell people who Jesus is, what he's done. We need to respond in faith. And yet we're also called to demonstrate it with love. Following his pattern, laying our lives down. The kind of love Christ showed us when he laid his life down on the cross. This is what Paul is doing as he writes this letter. This is what he's demonstrating while he writes this book. Remember, he's writing from prison. And why is he in prison? Because of the gospel of Jesus. He has been wrongfully incarcerated. He is possibly facing death because of his witness to Christ. Now, how does he respond to that? He rejoices at the privilege of suffering for Christ. He says it over and over again. He feels that the entire prison guard is talking about Jesus because he's in prison for him. He rejoices in that. He's suffering, and Jesus is being made known, and that's awesome to him. He's suffering in the suffering of Christ. He revels in events to honor Christ in his body, whether by his life, or, verse 20, chapter 1, by his death. For to him, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's sharing in Christ's sufferings to make Jesus known as a living picture of his love. What happens when we love not the people who like us, or the people whom we're like, What happens when we love those who don't like us or the God that we serve? What happens when we allow ourselves to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? 
to let our neighbor interrupt our day with an opportunity to serve and show them what the love of Christ looks like? What happens when we respond to someone's curse with blessing instead of curse, dismissal, anger, or else our hearts naturally want to do? We show the world what the love looks like. Remind one another what of Christ looks like. A love that was not reserved for those who deserved it. None of us did. But that was lavishly poured out on a bunch of sinners by the God. You need to know you're serious as a church about being gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ, which is what our vision statement says. You need to know if we're serious about that, then it's going to cost us. It's going to mean suffering. It's going to mean that we know to something we really love because knowing and sharing Jesus is even better. It's going to mean being opposed by the world that we lose some relation because some people in rejecting Jesus will reject us too. It's going to mean death. Are we a church ready to die for the gospel? It's going to mean laying our lives down, following the pattern of the cross, giving our lives away, and it's going to be beautiful. Because lives are going to be changed by the great God. Even as lives are changed by the grace of God. And that's Paul's second point. The second reason that we suffer for Christ. To make the gospel known and to be changed His grace. When we face rejection from friends or family members because of our witness to Christ, we're passed up for a promotion because of faith, or when we're even physically harmed or verbally abused. That's really painful. That really hurts. It's not a little thing. But not only does God give us opportunity to love others unconditionally in that moment, His Spirit is at work in our hearts to change our priorities, our affections, our desires, by reminding us what Christ suffered place, that our suffering is just all taste of what he did. By teaching us that this world cannot satisfy, that only Jesus is sufficient, all else is loss. And by redirecting our away from this to the resurrection to come, God is at work in our suffering just by his grace. Suffering is never easy. It wouldn't be called suffering. But God, in his grace, never wastes it. He never wastes it. He is always at work in every difficulty. And as Paul describes here, he's at work in the difficulties that come from knowing and serving Christ. Suffering for Christ. Sometimes it takes a little suffering to truly convince us of talking about in verse 8, when he says that no earthly gain can compare to the passing 
worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Sometimes it takes a suffering to convince us of that. Sometimes it takes a little suffering to remind us that this life is not the end of the story. And that means letting go of things that will disappoint us and even perhaps destroy us, then it's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. That means that in dying to myself, others can live because of the testimony of the gospel. It's worth it. It's worth it. Part of what God is doing in us sharing in our suffering is reminding us that this life is not a story. Becoming like Jesus in his death reminds us that this present world is not our home, and it forces us to put our hope in the resurrection to come. That's Paul's point at the end of 11. Become like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it says somehow here, or by any means possible, as, as other translations put it, He's not expressing an uncertainty as to whether he will share in the resurrection to come. Uh, the resurrection last day, which he talked the end of chapter 3, uh, very confidently, Christ will raise our whole bodies to be made like his glorious body. He's not unsure about whether it will happen. As I understand it, he's using this language of somehow to direct any attention from his own achievement and gets all the credit. For sharing in that. It's kind of the way you and I might say, by God's grace, when we talk about an accomplishment. I did this by God's grace. He gets the and You need to know that he gets the credit. That's what Paul's doing here. But don't miss his point. Sharing in Christ's suffering keeps our eyes on the real prize. Not the joy of health and wealth and power and recognition in this present world all of which will fade away. But the joy of God's presence for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth, the joy of the resurrection to come, sharing in Jesus' suffering and following the pattern of the cross prepares a delight in eternity, a resurrection when Jesus returns and brings God's redemptive plan to completion. Paul expresses it this way in 2 4. He says, though our outer nature is wasting away, all of the suffering we're talking about, all of the pain, our nature is being renewed day by day. The resurrection at work in our hearts. For slight momentary affliction. And if you read chapter 11 in this book, you see, Paul's not about an, an abubu or an owie. You know, he lists for an entire chapter all of the ways suffered for the name of Christ. And here he calls it a slight momentary affliction. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing but the things that are unseen are eternal. May our hearts be fixed on what is eternal. May we follow Paul's desire to know Christ. 
to know personally. And may our fellowship with Christ bear fruit for the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others as we follow the pattern of the cross in the power of resurrection. Let's pray together and ask God to do that in our lives. Lord, how we need your grace. And Lord, how we celebrate your grace. God, you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in our weakness. You did not leave us in our spiritual death, but you, Spirit, spoke new life into hearts. Give faith in Christ. And pray that if there are any here who know what I'm talking about there, who have not placed their faith in Christ, who don't know what this life, God, open their hearts to see you and to trust you and to experience the life that you alone can give. And use that life for your purposes, that we might know you personally and enjoy you and serve you, depending on your spirit and following your pattern of love and suffering. May we as a church willingly, joyfully, gladly lay our lives down that Christ might be made known in the Metro West. I pray that each heart, that you would be laying on each heart the names and faces of friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, people you want us to pray about, to pray for, to, to build relationships with, to share the love of Christ with. God, may we be intentional about the time you've given us here. And may in intentionality we come to know you more deeply as we see how insufficient we are, how afraid we are, how brave we are. We come to love and cling to you more closely as we step out in faith. And may you get all glory, God. May your spirit be pleased to make much of your name through us. We ask all of it in Christ's name.